From the Restoration Archives, this is Light and Truth. This discussion with Denver Snuffer entitled Missionary Work was originally recorded in Eden, Utah on July 2nd, 2016. Right, now we've got yeah, the new stuff on the table. I think everyone's making perfectly valid, true, and wonderful points. And it may seem like there's contradictions, but the souls of men are so differently situated that they have to be met wherever they are, in whatever circumstances you find them in, with regard to their unique view of the world. What happened in the early church when the missionaries went out and aggressively pursued and argued and debated and won over people who were persuaded by the power of the argument that brought them aboard. You got the Campbellites. Yeah. The book that is coming out next explains how... Um, the book is based upon three monumental failures in the life of Joseph Smith. And in each one of the failures, Joseph responded not by despairing or by throwing up his hands. He went to work on what he thought would fix the problem. From the time that John the Baptist promised that there would be some higher priesthood conferred upon him in May of 1829 until after the church was organized and they were holding a conference in June of 1831. Joseph Smith was looking forward to getting this higher priesthood conferred upon him. He finally got the commandment by the voice of God, just as the inspired version of Genesis chapter 14 says, that this priesthood is conferred upon man by the voice of God. The voice of God came to Joseph in the conference and was told to ordain people to this higher priesthood. He ordained six, and one of the six that he ordained ordained the rest of the people. Twenty-three total people were ordained to that high order of priesthood. And then the book documents what happened to everyone. It was not simply a failure. It was a catastrophic failure. And one of those who was ordained, Ezra Booth, went out and published a series of nine letters explaining what a fraud Joseph was. And he had received, by the voice of God, the ordination to the higher priesthood in June. By October, the, the uh, Ohio newspaper was printing the scandalous 
retelling of Joseph's hopeless failure that occurred in the ordinations in June. And in the same month that the Ohio newspaper is printing it, they hold another conference, and Joseph ordains people again. While you're reading in the newspaper about what an abject failure this was, okay? This is in October of 1831. Joseph Smith did not accept the failure. He set about trying to conclude how it would be possible for people to get power in the priesthood upon them and their posterity through all generations of time and into eternity. A phrase that shows up again at the end of this ministry, which utterly failed. And so what was the solution to the problem? It was lectures on faith. Lectures on Faith was addressing the crisis of the failure of the faith of people. And so Joseph's response was to say, okay, that didn't work. It's not a defect in those people. It's a defect in the ministry of Joseph. He simply assumed the responsibility and set about trying to fix the problem. It's exactly the sort of response you would expect from someone who knows that they're about God's word and they're not just freelance. The book tells the story, and invariably, it doesn't matter which crisis you look at and uh, the product that Joseph creates in response to the crisis. The villains are Latter-day Saints. Ultimately, the villains that would be responsible for the murder of Joseph Smith would be Latter-day Saints. If it had not been for those who managed to get themselves into a position of trust and confidence, what happened in Illinois that resulted in the death of Joseph could not have occurred. But Joseph believed that you could take anyone and convert them, save their soul, and march forward to Zion. Time and time again, it did not matter how bitter the betrayal was. Time and time again, he simply said, okay, that's a failure on my part. I can fix them by what I teach. Therefore, I need to be better. I need to explain more. I need to teach more. Juxtapose that with the Benedite who comes and he delivers the message and he says, this is the way it is, okay? This is, this is where the, um, the large, uh, burly animal is going to defecate in the woods, and that's the way it is, and he leaves, and he shuts down, he's gone. He comes back two years later and he says, time's up. Didn't work. Now, now, your garment, your life, Noah, is going to be valued like a garment in a hot fire. And they kill him. And he makes one convert. And the one 
convert of Abinadi is the hinge point of the entire Book of Mormon. Everything that happens before and everything that happens thereafter goes through Abinadi. And Abinadi and his one convert then become custodians of the record, and it is that convert's posterity that goes all the way to Mormon and Moroni. He is the hinge point of the story. One convert. And quite frankly, um, the priests of Noah, they didn't get much of a sermon. I mean, he vindicated how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that cry peace in his own person, despite the fact that he was pronouncing judgments and woe upon them, which seems like an odd contradiction, by pointing them to the Ten Commandments and saying, you don't believe them, you don't do them, you you are not converted to the... He didn't get into anything other than an explanation of the prophecy of Isaiah in the context of the Ten Commandments. Fairly rudimentary stuff. Persuades one guy. And that one guy goes out to be rebaptized, and before he rebaptizes apparently himself, he asks for authority from heaven to do that, and baptism takes place. And from there to the end of the Book of Mormon, that is the focus and the storyline. That's it. Okay? If you're going to measure quantity, and you look to Joseph Smith, who had probably 30,000, I mean 30,000 in, Joseph probably had 100,000 people baptized while he was still alive, but there were 30,000 that still held on, about 18,000, 19,000 were in Nauvoo, others were in faithful congregations around England, uh, New England, uh, and other other places. But Abinadi had one. Both of them gave their lives up. But if you take one step back from that, you say, whose ministry was more successful? <laughs> the the prophet of the restoration, whose own followers were responsible for the conspiracy to have him murdered, who created an absolutely, completely, vertically integrated structure that could be compromised by simply taking over the top seat, or Benedict who preached a message of repentance and organized nothing. I mean, there's there's a lot of dynamics that go into the success of the gospel, one of which is, if Joseph were here today and had in front of him the history of what occurred when he was here before, would he do the same thing again? It would be insane. It would be madness. You have a formula for failure. 
Therefore, you don't invoke the formula for failure in order to attempt to achieve success. If you're going to succeed, you must find a pattern other than the pattern which brought about the excommunication of people that believe in the Book of Mormon and choose to follow Christ. You have to have something other than that. The Book of Mormon's religious structure, and I'm not talking about the era of the judges, where there were governmental and church functions that were going on, and you really don't have a, a distinct separation of the two attitude and records. What you have, the best description is the one that's given in Alma about how, how they function. The priest came and would teach them on Sunday. Everyone would drop what they're doing. They'd come, they'd, they'd, they'd be taught. And then when they were done with their Sabbath observances, everyone would go back and they'd work and they'd labor. And there was no professional clergy. There was no hierarchy. They had a high priest who was apparently an itinerant that traveled around. The more you consolidate power and authority into an office, the more you tempt the adversary to gain control of the office. Because the one thing about salvation is it is entirely otherworldly. If you can get gain in saving the souls of men, you will be unable to save the souls of men. Because faith and the first principle of faith is obedience to God and sacrifice of everything. Without the willingness to sacrifice everything, it is impossible to gain the faith that will save your soul. So what happens when you trade sacrifice for power? What happens when you trade it for wealth? What happens when you trade it for the ability to control the souls of men? Joseph Smith sitting in Liberty Jail is not concerned about the governmental abuse that had confined him into a filthy dungeon. I cannot imagine the reek in the dungeon based on liberty. I mean, quite quite frankly, the display and the the temple prison does not communicate to you the wretchedness of the conditions in which they found themselves. There were two windows on either end of the building that had an opening less than a foot wide with one bar going through the middle of it, and there was no glass. So in winter, when the wind blew, there was no way to stay warm. If you lit a fire in the basement, the jailers would make you put it out. But if they didn't, they sat upstairs and laughed. By the time the straw generated heat, you were choking. In those direful circumstances, what Joseph is concerned about is the power of the priesthood and the abuse of priestly authority. 
No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, but by persuasion. Where does that come from in those circumstances? God. Because Joseph's concern was not about, and his faith was not based upon, the salvation of his own soul, the salvation of others. I mean, his response to every crisis he went through was exactly the same. So what can we learn about the value of numerosity by juxtaposing the tens of thousands that came aboard, many of whom were responsible for the death of Joseph Smith, and a structure that ultimately wound up utterly compromised. On the one hand, and the ministry of Abinadi with the one with the one convert on the other. If we manage to bring someone aboard by persuasion and out arguing them and beating them in um, scripture bash, how long do they remain aboard when someone else with a better argument? comes along to persuade them contrary-wise. But if you make a convert because they felt the presence of God with them, you can beat them with a crowbar and they're not going to give that up. Taking the message of the restoration of people and being rejected by 900,000 leaders and having one person show up is a perfect model. If you have 30,000 people show up and you baptize them, my guess is that um, in short order, the abuses and the, and the mess you would have on your hands would be shameful. It's the quality of the conversion process, and it's the, the, the presence of the Spirit. Even in the, the caution that we were getting in section 88, if you look at verse 72, the Lord says, Behold and lo, I will take care of your flocks and will raise up elders and send unto them. Well, how is it that we gain jurisdiction over someone by bringing them aboard? When the Lord said he's going to be the one that takes care of them. I agree, we need to nurture, we need to dung, we need to water. But ultimately, all we can really do is facilitate the Lord nurturing and facilitate the Lord dunning and facilitate the Lord ultimately giving the increase. 
I was a new, newly baptized LDS zealot. I had more baptisms than the full-time missionaries. I was a baptizing machine. A couple of them went on to serve missions before leaving the church. And as I counted the the track record of the numerous baptisms that I've made with time, um, I think there are two still left, and that I'm not one. <laughs> there's there's two two of them that are still, you know. Paying the church. Because what I did to get them converted was so in your face. I, I attended I attended the local Jewish temple um, lectures on Judaism to, to mind Jews. And I got some of them aboard. Jews don't last long. Mormonism. Um, I think we have to we have to be sensitive to a whole host of things. One of them is when the conversion takes place, it can't be us. I I talked during those ten talks and I worked on the book and I try, I tried to be as quiet as I could be. I tried to be as nondescript as I could be. Because what I don't want, I mean, every one of you that has talked about your conversion experience, it may have been facilitated by something I wrote. But she's right, it doesn't have anything to do with me. We can facilitate it, but it has to be between them and the Lord. Because I tell you, someone whose heart is inclined to the Lord and who has accepted him is not going to turn around and conspire to murder Joseph Smith. They're not going to do that. They will not find it in their heart. Um, I I want to point out that um, as Christ leads into this is my doctrine, Go back to verse 29 of 3 Nephi 11. It says, For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me. I mean, Paul says contend earnestly for the faith, and I, I did that, and I brought a bunch of people aboard the LDS church by contending, but Christ is saying um, contention is not of him, and yet that was one of the primary conversion tools that I employed. There's a difference between persuasion and contention. Persuasion largely does not happen because um, you overcome the resistance with argument and contention. 
Persuasion comes by opening up an idea and letting it enter into the heart of the man or the woman, and then letting God take over and get the growth inside them. But contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention, stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. So he's saying, don't contend, don't make people mad, don't confront them, take a step back from that. And I'll tell you what my doctrine is. And then, this is my doctrine. I bear record of the Father, the Father bareth record of me, and the Holy Ghost bareth record of the Father in me. Every bit of that is internal to the proselyte. Every bit of that. <coughs> Preach, teach, exhort, expound, contend. Bitch them into conversion. You've ignored what his doctrine is. It's internal to them. It goes on with him and them. We facilitate, but he's the one that ultimately becomes the object of their worship, the object of their adoration. It's like God wants a candle inside of you. You can hold the candle up and you can give people light. But if they don't get their own candle with their own flame, they're still dead. They, 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 aren't, they aren't alive. There's this... There's this description that's given in 1 Nephi chapter 14, verse 12. You're going to give up the cigar or something. I mean, you're not going to temple up in the middle of the day. 1 Nephi chapter 14, beginning of verse 12. And it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God, and its numbers were few, because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon many waters. Nevertheless, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who are the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth, and their dominions upon the face of the earth were small, because of the wickedness of the great whore whom I saw. I mean, we're, we're not going to get 15 million people. But it's not necessary that we get 15 million people. It's only necessary that the invitation be extended. If the invitation is extended and if the hearts of people respond, there is a resilience, there is a power there is something inside of them that cannot be broken. And we're not looking for anything other than the few. If you go 
go back to, and I want to remind you about, DNC Section 88 was given in December of 1832. Um, three months earlier, in September of 1832, the church was under condemnation. Um, when the revelation was given to, to Hiram Smith telling him, um, hold your peace, wait, you're not ready to go out yet, that was given before the Book of Mormon had come into print. Okay? Without the Book of Mormon yet in print, without the formal church organization. In 1829, and David Whitmer will write about it in his address to all believers. They were baptized people. In 1829, the Lord, by revelation, over and over said to people, if you have a desire to participate, you're called to the work. So everyone that wanted to, was told the field is white already to harvest. Well, one of the interesting things about the harvest is the only sickle that you can throw in or thrust in in order to make the harvest actually work is one that invites the grain to be harvested. Because if you're out there with a power mower and you're just bringing them in by dozens, um, that may not that may not have the kind of satisfactory results we would like to have. We do have the Book of Mormon. We do have the record of the fallen people who went before us. Times two. <laughs> um I, I have become less and less and less curious over time um, about the future. Because every time I'm inquiring about that, I wind up with more work to do. got to the point that I said the only thing the only thing I want to know about is the next step I don't want to hear about anything past that because I I don't I didn't like what I saw when I reached out a little ways into the future and I I don't want to go there and I don't want to be there so um the, the book that just got completed and will be out shortly is written with the objective of having something that can be handed to a believing Christian to introduce 
Joseph Smith as a significant Christian figure and nothing else. It goes no further than that one step. The content of that word, and it, it, it is a brilliant, brilliant little layout and simple story, and I can take no credit for it, because everything about it was from above. But it is a brilliant little book. If a Christian reads that book, um, they may be ready for something more. And they may be willing to talk to those who might be able to answer the question. Um, my wife and I were talking this last week about how happy I was that um, I finished that. And so far as I knew, there was nothing else coming. And wouldn't it be great to take some time off? And, and yeah, she left me alone, and I spent some time praying. And now there's another project, and I don't know, I don't like where it's headed. But um, I already started on another project, and I haven't even got the printer's proof of that. Nailed it from the last one. But the next one will will include within it, in the book, the, um, the websites where they can request baptism, where they can learn more. Um, the genius of the Lord in what happened with the restoration and then what he started over with again is that literally anywhere in the world <laughs> Anywhere in the world where there is a single soul who was one time baptized and one time ordained. And it doesn't matter if they're sitting in Japan and they're inactive. It doesn't matter if, if they're in um, Slovakia and they haven't had anything to do with Mormons. If they heard the message... If one time long ago they were baptized, and one time long ago they were ordained, wherever they are in the world, they can repent, they can call upon God, and they can ask for God to give them authority to baptize again. And they are immediately empowered to baptize within their own family. And as soon as you have enough to call a conference and you are sustained by seven women, you have the ability right then to begin to baptize outside of your family, anywhere in the world. Isaiah prophesied that in the last days it would break forth on the right and it would break forth on the left. Why does it break forth? Because no one is in control of running out there and saying, you, you, you need to get busy. It's them responding to God and God breaking it forth everywhere in the world. And the website allows people to contact wherever they are in the world and someone nearby can have volunteered or someone will travel. Um, everything that is happening is happening 
and an order organized by someone other than man. And I know what the next step is after the step that's rolling on at this moment, but all of it is designed to appeal outside of Mormonism to bring people aboard from anywhere in any religious tradition, primarily the Christian tradition, to convince them that they need to look into this. I was remarking to Alan that I'm, I'm now going to manage to make enemies in the Christian world like I've made enemies in the Mormon world because it's not, this stuff will not be happy for ministers um, because priestcraft is priestcraft, whether you practice it inside or outside the LDS church. LDS priestcraft may make the typical priest look like a piker and a poverty ridden amateur. Um, I don't know many groups of ministers that can embark upon a trillion dollar cost. Um, of development as Mormon leadership can, but priestcraft is wrong wherever you find um, In the verses that we looked at in 88, which is after the church has been brought into condemnation, Terry be tearing you in this place and call them Psalm Assembly, even though those are first labors in the last kingdom. They did call Psalm Assemblies, and Joseph would write from Liberty Jail um, how, um, how poor, how meek, how mean the conferences of the church had been too low, too mean, too vulgar, too condescending for the characters of those who are called by God. So even though they were calling song assemblies, um, there's, there's something more to the solemnities of God than merely getting together with long faces and um, pondering over Scripture. There's something about accepting the influence of the Spirit and proceeding when, if you have a desire, you're called to the work. Let those whom they have warned in their traveling call on the Lord and ponder the warning in their hearts, which they have received for a little season. See, the purpose to warn against the harvest and to harvest the wheat is so that they are gathered in to a place where they're protected against what is coming. Because ultimately the field is going to be burned. And the only thing that's going to be gathered in are the wheat that is harvested, and the way to harvest is to warn, and the way to warn is not with a lot of words, but with the sincerity of your heart, persuading people to open themselves up and receive a message from God. There's a comment about the misapprehension that some people entertain about Jesus, but they came in the sincerity of their heart to accept him. I would suggest 
that when you talk to the typical Christian about Jesus, the Christian who's going to listen to you is going to have in his mind or her mind exactly the figure that Joseph Smith saw in the first vision and not a triune, cosmic, incomprehensible, cosmic muffin whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, who sits on the top of a taco stone surrounded by myriad of beings who are saved, not for any act of theirs, but by his good pleasure. I'm quoting Golden now. <laughs> you went through before the minister's role was removed. So when you go and you see, preach Jesus to them, they are not thinking what the theologians are thinking. They are thinking what you were thinking. They are thinking what Joseph was thinking. They are thinking about a man who came into the upper room and said, Handle me and see. For spirit hath not flesh and bone, as ye see me have. They're thinking of that guy. They are not thinking of the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. And yet there are not three incomprehensibles, but one incomprehensible. That's one of the things that Jesus denounced when he said the creeds are an abomination. Yeah. I will take care of flocks. You know, I will raise up elders. Um, Melchizedek priesthood, higher order wasn't restored until 1831. In 1829, Joseph and Oliver were called the first elders of the church. In the beginning, the title elder, this is a problem with all of our filters and all of our vocabulary. In the beginning, an elder simply referred to someone who knew more, someone who was wiser. Respect your elders. What if the oldest and wisest in the village is a woman? who was here the last time we went through this. She's the elder. Because what you're looking for is someone that is in possession of information that may help you. Does that mean that she's ordained to the priesthood and all of the nonsense the ordained women are clamoring for, which, by the way, ordain them all you want. It's not going to amount to hell of beings. Elders that the Lord intends to raise up are people whose wisdom and counsel will bring people closer to the Lord. Whether that elder is Eliza Snow, Sister Martineau, Sister Maine, you know, in the um, Proverbs, there's a statement about 
um, if, you, if you hold your tongue, everyone will account you for being wise. I mean, Jan um, takes it all in. My guess is if you could ever get advice from her, you would find an elder in the I give unto you who are the first laborers in the last kingdom a commandment that you assemble yourselves together, organize yourself, prepare yourselves, sanctify yourselves, purify your hearts, cleanse your hands and your feet before me. Okay. What is the purpose of cleansing the hands? So that you do not handle anything that is unclean. How do you handle anything that is unclean? You go out and you meddle in stuff that isn't your um, prerogative to do. Um, All of the unclean things in this world. All of the stuff that bogs you down. How do you get contamination primarily into the body? Your hands lead you on a keyboard. They lead you when you're paying. They're a manifestation of the cares that you have. You want clean hands? Change the things about which you care. When we had animal sacrifice, particularly when we had like industrial animal sacrifice in the courtyard of um, the Temple of Solomon and the Second Temple and the Temple of Herod. You could not go into the courtyard where the animals were being sacrificed, even if you were only going to sacrifice a turtle dove. Okay? You could not go in there, and the turtle dove, they just run the neck, and it's, it's relatively blood-free thing. You couldn't go in there and not get blood on your feet. Because the sacrifices that were going on were just dumping blood they collect it in bowls and they, they sprinkled on the altar. But you sever a carotid artery in any animal and you've got, you got spray. And the courtyard's a mess. And if you walk out into the courtyard, even for a, a modest sacrifice, and you walk back, you have blood on your feet. What is the blood representing? The sins of this world. How do you cleanse your feet? If you want your hands clean and you want your your feet clean, then walk in the paths of righteousness. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Your feet are walking where there's peace. Where are they going to stay clean? And if need be, you can take a step or two into the still waters to make sure that the feet are clean. But you can go sacrifice goats and lambs 
and anything you want to sacrifice all day long. And be no cleaner from the sins of this world for that act. Just like you can have the Savior kneel and wash your feet and receive no benefit if you're Judas. Oh, I think you left the room by that time. But when he's talking about this, they would invoke a ceremony inside the um, Kirtland Temple to actually wash feet, but it's a symbol of the cleansing and the abandonment of sin. You want to have clean feet? We can wash all your feet, but it's not going to take any greater effect upon you than what you already received in the LDS Temple if you want your feet clean, walk in the paths of righteousness and stay in there. That I may make you clean. See, that's that's the cleanliness we seek for. That I may testify unto your Father and your God and my God that you're clean from the blood of this wicked generation. That I may fulfill the promise, this great and last promise, which I made unto you when I will. And also I give unto you a commandment, you shall continue in prayer and fasting from this time forth. No. Let your food be prepared with singleness of heart that your fasting may be. You can fast. You can fast more effectively by shutting off the things of this world and tuning in the things of God than you can by simply going hungry. Some people go hungry and get grouchy. They don't, get, they don't get closer to the Lord. They get more irritating to the neighbor. It's called hangry. Oh, hangry. Oh, hangry. <laughs> yeah. People get hangry. <laughs> and I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. Every one of you that's spoken up today, every one of you has been doing this, teaching one another the doctrine of the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to do. Teach you, teach you diligently, my grace shall attend you, that, you're, that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory and principle and doctrine and the law of the gospel and all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand. We're going to have an opportunity for that up in Boise, and I'm hoping that those that are going to be talking are spending time on teaching one another this stuff. I would hope it would be useful and edifying and in conformity with, with what we're directed to do. Of the things both in heaven and in the earth. And under, you know, this is a huge aside, but the things that are under the earth is dirt and caves. It's the movement of the stars as they rise and fall on the horizon. You've written a little about that. But the things under the earth, things which have been, which are things which must shortly come to pass, that's the definition of truth. Truth is the knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. 
things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and perplexities of the nations and the judgments which are on the land. And one of the biggest judgments that are upon this land is that this land belongs to and is going to be preserved for those who worship the God of this land. And when they reject the God of this land, they get swept away when they fulfill you know, the measure that is required for them. Knowledge also of countries and kingdoms. Boy, that means more than just France and Italy. Countries are places that are lands of inheritance that have been given by God. No one owns a country that hasn't been given to them by covenant from God. And of kingdoms, that's not the monarchs of Europe or the Middle East. That's God's. Because what, what difference does it make to us who the, the king of Saudi Arabia is? That ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. Look, the commission has been given. I sent you out to testify and warn the people, and it becometh every man who hath been warned, warn his neighbor. You guys have been warned. The content of what has been given, and understand, all, all those ten talks and preserving the restoration, it's entirely based upon expounding the scriptures. You can take the message of everything in that book, bypass the book, go to the scriptures, Teach, preach, exhort, expound using only the source material. And they don't have to listen to an apostate. My name doesn't have to come up. I've noticed it's been leaking into general conference a little bit. <laughs> Therefore, they are left with that excuse and their sins are upon their own heads. <coughs> yeah, look. I've gotten a signal. Shut up. Sit down. Shut up. Sit down. But but I do think that um, I do think that everything that everyone has said is part of dealing with it. And once we have brought someone aboard, if their heart is right, I'm not going to get around pointing them to, to websites and inviting baptism and, and what I'm writing until the book after the book is now coming out. But that will be addressed to the Christian world. It's very methodical. The pace is somewhat slow. But I can tell you we're better off bringing the right people aboard as a Benedite and harvesting huge numbers and winding up with an absolute mess in our hands. But if they come aboard and they come aboard is the Lord's, the Lord's going to watch over them and the Lord's going to care for them in a way that exceeds our capacity to do so.
thinking about the 14th. Your blog post on the 14th. Oh. Or meaning that what you quote was received or April 14th. Yeah, the April 14th. <laughs> I'm sorry, I laugh at myself. I'm not a very good student. I'm embarrassingly uh, oblivious to the audience. I can tell you stories about that. You would wonder at you would wonder at the Lord's patience, but I wanted to know about Joseph and the restoration and details about what went on in Nauvoo and what has been going on since Nauvoo and where and what and who. And I couldn't get enough questions out on the table. Um, I was obnoxious, obnoxiously inquisitive, nothing about the future. I want to know about the past up until now. Um, I saw what we were doing. And how um, apparently important that was. And how the Lord's watching over this. And then the view expanded and God's working with people that we won't encounter for some time still to get them ready for what's coming. And he's surprisingly just as involved in caring for them as he is in attended to us. Then the view um, increased another order of magnitude and I could see every people Everywhere. And it doesn't matter who they are, where they are, what their culture is. It doesn't matter where they are in this world. He's working to bring about ultimately their salvation as well. And then it got ridiculous. Because he has concerns about... Um, creations that are without them. But in trying to put it into words, this is the analogy that, that I've come up with. Let's liken Zion to a bus station. And someone needs to build the bus station. And that might be us. And if we build a bus station and we have a place that can receive people and that is a place of safety where they can pass through, when we finish with that, 
The bus station won't amount to much if someone doesn't build a bus. And we're not building that bus. And the buses that get built are not going to go anywhere if they don't have fuel. And someone's got to do that. And that's going to involve miners and explorers and manufacturers and refiners and transport people and delivery mechanisms that God is working with. And when they finally fill the buses, that will be someone over whom God is responsible. When they finally get to our bus station, we're not going to be the ones that stand there and say, yeah, we built the bus station. We rock. (laughs) Zion is an absolutely critical component in the last day's plan of God and indispensable in the salvation of the souls of men, living and dead. But it's just a bus station. And through it will pass concourses of people with whom we've had very little responsibility. When he says that there's going to come a time when their prophets are going to awaken and will no longer stay themselves, and they're going to come from the lands of the north, and they're going to come to the bus station to receive something at the hands of his servants, Ephraim, in the boundaries of the everlasting hills. He's working on that. And he's working with people on that. And, and we, need, we need to be about what he's asked us to do. And it's important. It's indispensable. But it's absolutely no more indispensable than what he's doing among people in Asia and Europe and Africa and everywhere else in the world. And he promises, you read on in the scriptures, he tells you after the voice of warning, then he's going to preach a sermon. And his sermon is going to shake and cause fear. And it's not because he's a, an angry God. It's because he's a loving God who knows what it takes to stir people up, to get attention, to consider the things of eternity. But that's essentially... I mean, it's, it's, hard. it's hard to put into words what so much. Yeah, but um, that's the analogy, and I, I think it conveys the meaning um, because he, he is the God of the whole world. And every soul matters to him. And Christ's atonement was intended to yield the absolute greatest benefit that can be obtained through the suffering of the Lord. And for some people, 
their reluctance is no deterrent to the Lord's desire to save them anyway. I think Zion needs to be people that receive the word with gladness <laughs> and not people we contend with to bring the book I'm really interested in seeing what we get up in Boise. I think that's going to be an interesting moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I, I understand I've been through for some time. <laughs> Jan saw the signals, but I don't know if I... <laughs> um, I just want to say that, uh, that I am so appreciative of everything that I've heard here today, and I want to... Um, I want to let you know that I think Jan and I have already um, determined what it is that the Lord is going to have us do, and that was for us, I think the role is primarily sowing. We've got all of these patterns that I just love in the scripture. We've got the patterns of the vineyard and the patterns that we just went through in the 88 section. They're all just marvelous. But uh, I think the Lord has made known to us that we have a role to play, and that role is at first is going to be a sower. Jan and I are going to spend uh, as much time as we can just sowing the gospel. And then when we hear the voice of the Lord, then we're going to get involved a little bit with uh, dunging and digging about. We're going to be doing some of that. There's one thing I hope the Lord never asked me to do personally, and that's prune. <laughs> because pruning is uh, something that takes life away. And I don't like that. What I've come to realize is that we were kind of at a disadvantage having the traditions and the, you know, the understanding that we've been given and have been led to believe about the doctrinal covenants. When you read the words in there, uh, waiting until the mouth of the Lord speaks something. If we were to ask anybody in the room here who the mouth of the Lord was, a few years ago, without a doubt, every last one of us would say, the prophet. The mouth of the Lord is the man that stands at the head of the church. So what we've come to realize is that we have to take that a little more literally now. We literally have to hear the mouth of the Lord. And so we wait for that. And when we receive the mouth of the then we do what we're asked to do. For Jan and I, right now, I think that we, we are going to focus on sowing. That's the effort that we've got to do. Things have to be planted. You know, this gray pattern that we're given in Scripture, there is again. Things have to be sown first, and then they have to be nourished and, and dung and dug about, and Deborah just mentioned that that is probably going to be best left to the Lord right now. In, in Jacob, in the Book of Mormon, it's absolutely clear. Servants are invited to participate in that activity at some point. 
but there has to be there has to be this sequence. And, uh, we absolutely have an obligation to share the Book of Mormon with people. When we do that, we'll receive that from the mouth of the Lord. That's to be done up front, and we be done. But, I just want to express my gratitude for every testimony that's, that's given in here. Everyone is valuable and uh, worthwhile. And, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, I think a lot of the things that we heard Denver say are absolutely true. You know, we have not, we cannot get too caught up in numbers. Most of the scriptures that I look at that pertain to our day and our age, they're just there are not numbers there. There are not going to be massive conversions. I don't believe it. But it's just like what happened over in Denver. That was perfect. Because that saved one soul. And it was it was perfect. Completed exactly what it needed to do for one Zion may, may be just a handful of building stations. Exactly. And there's other groups elsewhere that we have nothing to do with. I think this revelation is important because we do start feeling special. You know, we try to be humble and we try to be meek and we try a lot of different things, but uh, I think. We need, do need to realize that, uh, that we may not be as special as we think. And I think the word myopic was given in that same thing. That is a powerful word. When you understand what it means to be myopic, you know, we, we're guilty. I've probably been guilty. Well, we cannot be that way. We absolutely have to be turning, turning out you know, to, to the one. We have to have confidence too. Like Steve taught me right here in this room before he baptized me down the road, that his sheep hear his voice. You just do. And whether it be up front, people have heard Steve's voice and other voices, they just hear his voice. It resonates. And then they have that desire in them that it, it, it doesn't leave. So we should have confidence in that too as, as we get out and about doing the Lord's work and we open our mouths. One of the best conversation starters that I've had in the last couple of months with folks at work has been the fact that I've been excommunicated. And I mean that in seriousness. I've, I've got a lot of Christian friends at work. And I don't mean among Latter-day Saints. It's not popular, of course, with anyone who's an active member, but a Christian friend. Um, when I say, hey, you know, let me tell you something. And I tell them I've been excommunicated because of my beliefs uh, from the Mormon Church. I've had several people perk up and say, let's go watch. And I made everybody just over the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big wine guy. But yeah, I mean, I think the opportunity is ever present. Could I ask something of, of the group for a minute? Um, 
got, as has been mentioned, uh, up in Boise, we've bitten off this general conference thing, primarily at the instigation of a certain redhead who shall remain nameless. And um, we've got a lot of good things planned, but I would really like to hear thoughts and ideas for what you'd like to see happen, what you feel needs to happen. Freeform, go. Someone ought to explain what this whole thing is about. I like the big picture. Okay. What are you people? Okay. So someone should explain the big picture of who the folks are that came and why we're here. Well, we're not the organizing. It's not our conference. Well, and the... the yeah, that's. The, I think an introduction is a great idea. And I, I may yet end up as a speaker there. I don't know what will happen. But having somebody, whoever that is, organize or introduce who we are and what we're doing here, I think it's a great idea. Volunteer. What's that? Just volunteer. Yeah. Politically, among the Boise folk, I try to keep a low enough profile because I blog, I teach every week, I'm, I don't want to come across as hogging attention. Um, other thoughts about what ought to happen at conference, um, both within and, and around the conference? Okay. I have two yeah. I have it invited to be speaker, so if you prepare it, I'll read it then. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Sorry, it's on you, man. No. Maybe you can talk Well, the topic of the conference is Doctrine of Christ Conference. And we're sitting here talking about spreading this word, inviting people to learn the Doctrine of Christ and be baptized. And it seems that within this movement, that has not been the focus thus far in teaching. Um, it seems like the focus right now, just from what I gather online, is receiving second comforter and then those, I don't know. And I think the focus is also their, on Latter-day Saints. That's true. But like was just mentioned, the fact that you've been excommunicated is a huge conversation starter. It is. Maybe, I mean, not everyone who's coming has been excommunicated. Yeah. Yeah, they ought to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will you say more about what you're Well, so, this seems like a big deal uh, to the Lord right now in furthering his work. And I think the people within the movement need to realize that and maybe be taught um, some of the things we discussed here and how to implement that, whether it's a speaker who speaks or, a, I don't know, and then a breakout session or something that gets people on that same road and excited about preaching the doctrine of Christ to not just the LDS, but to anyone who listens. Is anyone here who's speaking in addition to Lewis and me? Um, sorry, thinking. Who else is speaking? Um, okay. Okay, flat. Oh, that's, that's secret. 
<laughs> it's fine. He doesn't want to publish yet. It's fine. He doesn't want to publish, but yeah, McKay Platt speaking. Um, um, uh, Daniel Rogers. Yes. Um, I Annette. have uh, oh, Annette Larson. Um, she's the only female. You're needing maybe another female. Um, to speak. I felt impressed many times that Adrian needs to speak because he kind of, I mean, he's here, he's hearing what's going on and understanding. But those in Boise who he has a blog, he's too high profile, don't know. Um, there's been some issues there. So. Are these assigned topics? I mean, topic, topic hasn't been assigned. I, I have a comment in that regard. Um, you know, shows have talked about how mean and how low and condescending and so forth the conferences of his day were. I don't think we're doing a whole lot better. Um, I think that there needs to be teaching of true principles. Um, anecdotes are wonderful. They, they arouse a lot of emotion in people. Um, but at some point, every one of us, uh, me first and foremost, need to be taught. We need to come to understanding and to comprehend things that we don't currently comprehend. Um, and and I, I believe that probably is true across every single person who's involved in this movement. And so and so the, the, the things that happen in these conferences have to turn uh, from anecdotal sharing uh, and rousing emotion among one another or commiserating or yeah whatever to 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 elevating all of us in understanding and comprehension of truth principles. We usually get that from one source and it's got to become common among every single one of us. And his, his title is Dr. Christ. Mm-hmm. Why don't we focus on repent, believe, baptism, Holy Ghost? Expounding those. those little towns. Yeah, it's a great and, idea. And so those topics are there. They're powerful. Steve is going back to this very room. As for beginning, going down this path, holding this down, that doctrine of Christ. Went down in our family and everyone that we baptized and taught, what is repent? Not everyone's reading the lectures. A lot of people say, I got one or two in. What is repentance? What is belief? And what is baptism? It's a symbol of hope and light. And maybe to be able to get in and teach the doctrine of Christ. Um, we've been taught. We've uh, been taught well. I don't think uh, many people really comprehend. We receive, comprehend, and we can teach. As we've been also taught, too. I would suggest going down and teach those aspects of the doctrine of Christ, including Dr. Cunnett's Canon 67, what the church is. Well, because it rounds out, he said, this is my doctrine, Dr. Cunnett's 10. I consider that to be rounding out what is is there, because he said this is my doctrine. But start on those. It's powerful. It gives the Holy Ghost an excuse to bear witness. 
and it, it touched people's hearts because it's foundational. So that's where that's what I was hoping when I saw Doctor in Christ. I was like, yes, because in Arizona, that's what we're doing. Our fellowships, we don't go far beyond at this point the Doctrine of Christ and anything chapter and verse. We just don't. There's no anecdotes. There's no stories. We just focus on the doctrine. And there's powerful unity that's there. Right? Good input, folks. A couple of thoughts. Yes. Uh, One is uh, probably tangential because I. But and it doesn't seem to fit into what we're talking about here. But I just want to bring it up uh, because it it was the it was well I'll just say it. So at the Moab ish talk uh, out there that Denver had given, he said, uh, "Well, we talked a lot about Zion and about priestcraft, but uh, more so throughout the whole thing about Zion, about kingship and righteous kingship." And I had a very distinct thought during that talk. We need to call a general conference and, and, and plead with the Lord to give us more. And after we left, I texted several people and said, we should call a general conference, spread the word. And um, then it was a matter of a week. They went by and uh, the Boise group, uh, our folks, had, had called a conference, a general conference. And then I heard it was about the doctrine of Christ, which is wonderful. But I wondered in my own experience was we're learning about Zion, we're talking about kingship, we need to supplicate the Lord as a people and come fasting and ask that he will give us more instruction about what it is worth to do in that regard. I don't know if that's the appropriate venue for it, is that general conference. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But my wonder and my question, and that's why it's probably tangential, is when when is the right time for us to learn more about what was said there? Because an idea was planted there. Um, and that's it. And uh, it's an idea that's been left open, but that that's how the Lord has been doing this all along for the last eight years. He very wisely plants ideas, preparing us for something that's about to happen in six months or 12 months. And by the time it happens, there's a group of people who have been paying enough attention to to receive by the voice of God what's being shared. And so I, I wanted to bring that up here, too, because um, it's easy to forget what's just been given. And... I think that is probably uh, something that is essential to our bus station and uh, moving forward at some point in the future, and, and we don't know enough about it. Actually, Matt, that's kind of what prompted this. Denver mentioned, too, that the Lord had more. And you and hope to be able to share it sometime. And I'm like, gosh, I want some of that. Yeah, let's, uh, let's put together something so we can. Yeah, um... Joseph had a mess in his hands because he was he was actually trying to get it all on the ground. And I I think I think he his life was taken at an important moment to interrupt it before it got any further than that. Um, if you go back go back to the antediluvians and the inordinate wickedness that existed then. Um, there was a reason why he had to kill them all. Um, and this was at a point 
in the history of the world where um, they were all descended from a common core, a common father who had been dead for very long given the length of days. People, there were living people who remembered Adam. And they understood some things and perverted some things. And so when you get to the other side of the flood, the, the approach has been to, to proceed a whole lot more cautiously. But the one thing about that, I mean, the, the, the great king came and knelt and served and I mean, he, he told Peter, don't do that. Don't defend me. I got 12 legions of angels here. And they didn't have a legion of Romans in all of Palestine. They could have 12 legions of angels. It, it seems to me that, that the gist of kingship is Christ-like. Not at all what we're thinking. But then again, he had very little positive to say about the Gentile view of kingship. I don't know how that. <laughs> the problem with talking about this, in my opinion, is that, is that uh, you've already got the speakers chosen and um, and there is not one who is willing to stand up and tell them what they should speak about. So they're just going to willy-nilly speak off of their own experience and their own kind of thing. When uh, when we like, you know, rather than that, we would like six Denver's to speak. <laughs> See, but nobody's willing to nobody's willing to take that responsibility and say, I'm going to assign something to speak on. And, and that may not even be appropriate, but it, but that's the way it is, you know. So how do you make a general conference that takes all of this thing? And, you know? Well, there, there may be some opportunity to provide some, not an assigned topic, but maybe some overarching guidance to all the speakers to say, look, this is what we're here to focus on. Um, we'd like you to catch your comments there and teach truth rather than telling stories sort of a thing. Except as the stories come back. I'm hoping we don't mirror an LDS general conference sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you need, oh, sorry, just oh, you need to say don't waste our time. Yeah. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Do not waste time. You got people Lewis and Mary are already. Yeah. 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 stories. Yes. Yeah. 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 You can't back out, man. Yeah. Do you think by, by trying to get people to assign talks that takes away from the spirit and you know, letting them follow the spirit? I mean, that is what's happened 
general conferences is considered an assigned to talk and therefore it takes away from that. I didn't really think they were assigned talks. They are. And they all be written down. I mean, it's all different. But I mean, think of, think of when we were members of the, of the church and we were given a talk. It might not have been what you really felt like you needed to be talking about. You know, um, so I think I think assigning somebody and, and putting guidelines on them, I almost think that takes away from the spirit. Well, rather than assigning a topic, but assigning, hey, don't waste our time, yeah. don't tell stories, we teach truth. This go to the, the Lord theme. and get yeah, your message. Yeah, this is the theme of the conference, stick to it. Yeah, yeah. and go to the Lord, get your message from, which I'm sure all the speakers are, but... There was a missing aspect in Boaz, is, uh, besides we never came down, they didn't open the scriptures much. It'd be wonderful to have open the scriptures and point to the source and hopefully get people to actually open them up and start digging and searching. I mean, that's where the power is. Or so we start finding their roots in the, these scriptures that have been largely ignored in the church leadership, except for that curriculum that we've been fed for years, and just get out and just open it. And how wonderful it would be, point to third, or second Nephi 31 and 32, point him to 13 uh, uh, point him to Moses 6. I believe the doctrine of Christ is in Moses 6. Absolutely. It's right there. there. Sure. And, and all of a sudden, we're going to be going, wow, it's there. And, uh, my thing is, don't waste your time, but open the scriptures and, and teach from the scriptures. Excellent. There are about Great. two more slots for speakers, and um, we've kind of been thinking, well, we need to come to this gathering and see what's discussed and how we can implement that more fully into the conference. But it kind of, I guess, depends <coughs> on what we come, when we come up with. You need more with But not you. No. <laughs> so, so Sarah and I were just invited up to the Western Slope uh, a month and a half ago, and the fellow who invited us, he said, I, I would like you to come speak, and I don't want you to waste our time, we want you to preach doctrine from the scriptures. And I said, that's great, is that the same instruction that everyone else is getting? And he said, yes. We showed up over three hours of nonsense. I, I mean, I'm, I'll be straightforward, and we were disappointed in something. Uh, and uh, I thought we did a pretty good job. <laughs> 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 instruction, it was amazing to me that the person very carefully tried to select people who he thought would instruct the group, and then those same people wasted everybody's time with just bad ideas. <laughs> it's a, it's a reflection of where the people are. So, it's it's a reflection of what's in their minds. And, you know, we all had a wonderful experience in Moab because we were, we were taught for a half hour something that was meaningful. The rest of the time was, I felt like I was back in an LDS, um, you know, meeting. sacrament meeting, testimony meeting, listening to people raise emotion about anecdotes that, are meaningful to the person repeating the anecdote, but, but you know, emotion is not going to, uh, uh, you know, deliver salvation to anybody. Absolutely. Most of the time, I, I assumed that it was uh, yeah. useful. Well, and, uh, so there's lessons, lessons to be learned. I'm glad that we had that experience to learn the lessons. Uh, I've been to, I've been to a, a number of 
conferences, gatherings, even spoke at one. And I've, I've noticed it runs the gamut from waste of time to sometimes some profound, powerful truth time. So we're going to aim for more of that. Can I ask a question that's maybe even off topic a little bit here? I'm wondering how many men there might be showing up to this conference that haven't got a certificate yet. And I'm wondering if there's some provision for a general conference to be Just issuing certificates to a man. I know it was intended to be local fellowships and women that were familiar with the man. Or we did that down in Colorado. A minute or two, but is there provisions for having certificates issued at a general conference? I guess is the question. One of the breakout sessions could be that. Well, let me let me speak to that because the local fellowships are ideal for that because the women know the men. I, as a woman, I'm not signing certificates. Well, right, but I'm saying if you if you have a breakout session where, you know, where, and, and I'm not begrudging people, women who feel comfortable with that. That's not my call. I'm just saying um, to put a bunch of women on the spot by saying, okay, now we're having this breakout session. All you women go sit in this thing with your pens out so that men can come and get their certificate signed. I won't. I mean, Speaking personally, not going to do it. And I don't see a thing wrong with the woman interviewing the man and saying you okay. signed a certificate. Sure. There are ways there are ways to have it. That. There are ways to have it done, but it can't be um, okay, surprise women who are here. We're now going to ask you to go into a room or a alcove or a, under a tree and and sign certificates. Because right. that just that, does that not, makes sense. But I, I guess I'm just thinking about how many men would, there might be out there that don't have a It would be wonderful if there could be something that made everybody feel comfortable about the way it was handled. And that'll happen. So yeah. the women <laughs> yeah. who aren't going to go sit under that tree and sign certificates don't feel like they're, you know, yeah. hindering some potentially worthy man who does deserve that. Well, and so... We can, we can think about that. In Colorado, the men were asked to speak, were grilled, um, and then... My wife was there. Yeah, wife was there introducing him, and then having, having done that, uh, who is willing, based on what you know or what you've heard or what you feel? Yeah, so been done and been successfully done. Yeah, yeah that worked. So, yeah, we can... Let's, let's consider how to do that. We'll ask the women for their wisdom. <laughs> okay. Anything else? I don't want to belabor this, and I know we kind of need to end. Any other thoughts about the conference? Um, is there going to be any issue at all with you know, the, the cost of things or anything? Or oh, uh, I'll, I'm comfortable telling this group it's it's going to cost around five grand to put on. By the time we have, you know, venues and insurance and all the junk we need to do. Because um, there's such a large amount of people coming, it increases the cost of insurance. Yeah, some of the venues require an insurance certificate, and then the fire department has to sign off, and the police department has to, anyway, we're handling all that. Um, there will come a point where uh, we'll, we'll make it available. Those who want to contribute to offset the cost of the conference, I mean, Boise Group's trying to pay for all of it. But we will take contributions. We'll make that available. 
really the contributions we want is to help people travel to get here. I mean, there's right right off the bat, a guy in Sweden said, I desperately want to come. I can't afford a plane ticket. Other people stepped up and bought them. That's what we want to see. There's some other people that are... Was he speaking English? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very well, as a matter of fact. Okay. Uh, what were you saying? There's some other people who need like, help with housing. We're trying to house as many as we can in our homes camping, but they're still going to be overspilled. Yeah. I, I do know from previous experience, like at the Colorado conference, there was a lot of money that came in, five figures, and went out. And every penny that came in went out to cover other people's travel expenses to help people get there. And in the end, it was a beautiful thing. Those who had contributed, those who needed, were blessed, and all who wanted to come I thought Colorado was a huge success. I love that conference and everything about Yeah, there was a lot to like there. There was a lot to like. Which, which uh, Colorado? It was called the Remnant Reunion. Brett Corbage organized it down near the Grand Mesa. Oh, oh, oh yeah. One in May. A year ago. Yes, you're the one. Yeah. The one in May on Mesa that you can't get on until the 1st of July. Yeah. It worked out great. Well, I don't mean to, I don't mean to belabor it, so thank you, everybody. Uh, yes, please. Um, are, is it going to be recorded? I won't be able to go because I... You know, at least audio, and there's been talk of video. Okay. But at least audio will be recorded. Okay, we look forward to that first. The ones that can't make it. Yeah. Is it sexy? I'll just make sure. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the resolution on the missionary question? So no very here. <laughs> she's she's keeping the man. She she'll give us the conclusion. So Jen, what's the what's the summary of what we've learned and how we're supposed to? I'm right. I mean, <laughs> you very much more. No. I told Martin I was uh, vindicated. He wanted Jen back in the kitchen. Yeah. I told them, I said, well, uh, in your, uh, I told Jen and Gwen, I said that you guys certainly have noticed that, uh, that, uh, my jets have cooled way down. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know, it's, uh, to respond to your question, it is amazing. Every time that you encounter the Lord, you're, you, you're adjusted. You're sent in a direction that you were sure you would be sent. And, and that's good. I I think I have heard some words today. And I think what I've heard is the Lord is going to cause this to happen. We ought to be still, listen to his voice, do what he says. So, you know, you tend to look at the scriptures and think, oh, man, you know, these guys go out, these sons of Mosiah, you know, and they spend 14 years and they do all of this. And the thought would never cross your mind that, that you know, Joseph did that very same kind of stuff. And they cut off flopped on him. I, who would have considered that except the Lord? 
So I love that. I, I was given, I think, what I was hoping for here. Were you?
surging away this time, Adrian? It wasn't intended. <laughs> really bringing it up. Someone we haven't heard from today? Um, how about if we all get on our knees? Yeah. <laughs> Those who are able. Sister Elaine is exempt. And so is Sarah. <clears throat> about if uh, someone feels inspired to pray, pray. Father, as we close today, thank you for blessing us to come together, even in um, perhaps some differences in understanding. Our desire is to know and do your will. Thank you for blessing us with scriptures and for your spirit to teach us. Thank you for the truths that have been expressed here, for the ways that our understanding has been enlarged. Thank you for the ways that our Hearts have been knit together. Father, more than anything, we desire to assist in this great work that you've undertaken. We pray for your guidance as first. We acknowledge that we're we acknowledge that we're ignorant. And we're nothing without the grace of Christ. We pray that it will be shed forth on us each individually as we seek to participate in and share the doctrine of Christ by others to come to him. And also in our groups and fellowships as we participate together. We acknowledge that the adversary is working very diligently against us with strength and power to overcome any opposition. We offer this prayer and give our thanks we hope you've enjoyed this presentation by Denver Snuffer. For more information, including complete transcripts of all of Denver's lectures, please visit restorationarchives.com. If you would like to hear more Light and Truth, please take a moment to subscribe. Just search for Light and Truth in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.